taking the first few moments of the sitting to establish a continuity of mindful awareness, either with your chosen primary meditative object or allowing your attention to be drawn to whatever calls it, noticing the object itself, but also recognizing the awareness of it. Taking note of, <clears throat> taking note of sensations in the body, stimulus from the environment, <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> And also attending to the internal state of the mind. Taking a look at what the weather pattern is in the mind this morning. <clears throat> also checking the attitude of the mind as you approach practice, what is the energy with which you're practicing? Checking to see that the mind or the attention is open, receptive, allowing, interested, willing to experience the present moment. Last night I spoke about the tormenting states of mind that visit periodically or occasionally or frequently. And the importance of beginning to recognize them when they appear and to be really sober in our assessment of them, that these are the states of mind that cause us distress maybe just subtle impatience or irritation, but sometimes a full-blown emotional drama that is just really overwhelmingly painful. While we have experienced many of these upheavals in our life and we're quite used to them even, even though we don't prefer them, we have a kind of just tolerated them without the understanding that we can actually work with them. And working with them in order to understand them weakens their grip on the mind. 
but it takes courage and it takes information and it takes a willingness with some faith that we can actually do this work. We can acknowledge what is distressing the mind. We can come to accept that this is the way things have come to be. And we can begin to reframe our understanding that we can work with them. Not just to get rid of them, but to really accept them, open to them, feel them, come to understand them by observing them with interest. They come, they last a while, they leave. We don't really need to act them out. We don't need to get rid of them. We don't need to uh, feel that they're an unmovable burden in our life, but rather they're a visitor that is asking to be known. And when we know them clearly, they cease to be such a torment. All of the visitors that torment the mind have some, have one foot in delusion and often the other foot in attachment or aversion. So this is how we can begin to recognize them. Now, most often we're familiar with these states of mind in reaction to something that we're experiencing. So that when we feel discomfort in the body, it conditions some form of aversion, frustration, disappointment, irritation, anger, and a sense of struggle. Or when something pleasant arises in the mind, you know, a fantasy of some future, we get entangled in the pleasantness of the object, the fantasy, and we have all kinds of excitement, anticipation, expectation. And while that is not immediately unpleasant in a cause of suffering, it leaves us disappointed if and when it doesn't happen. Or actually the feeling of longing and the feeling of desire, if we can turn around and look at it, is really quite unpleasant even while the object of the desire is pleasant. So we think of something that we want, something that we want to do, someone we want to be with, and that object is very enticing, very compelling, very pleasant. But when we turn around and look at the mind that is wanting, yearning, desiring, feeling unfulfilled in the moment, it's really unpleasant. So notice this in the experience of pleasant experience. And notice the reaction in relationship to the unpleasant experiences. Some kind of pushing away with fear, irritation, impatience. Or maybe we internalize our aversion with despair, depression, self-judgment. 
All of these are, well, familiar states of mind, but they are unpleasant, they're, un- they're states of suffering. And so the Buddha suggested that we work with them, come to understand them, and in this way begin to disentangle ourselves from them. Now most often we notice the reactions in response to different stimulus. But there's another area of our practice where the these states of mind also are apparent. And that is in the very effort that we make to be mindful, to be aware. And so sometimes the attitude in our mind as we are undertaking the practice of observation, sometimes it has a lot of expectation in it. We're looking at the present moment with some expectancy, maybe kind of a subtle demand that it be clear, that it be concise, that it be really easily recognized. And we're holding this tension in the mind that's doing the observing. Well, this too is one of those torments of the mind, not in reaction to our experience, but in the very intention of our effort. So we want to take a look and ask ourselves, what is the attitude in the mind that's observing? Is there some expectation? Is there some demand that experience be like this or that? Is there some wariness or hesitation that, I don't know, maybe it's gonna be like it was yesterday, painful, dull, sleepy, whatever. And quite subtly, these states of mind visit the mind while we're trying to practice. We feel wary or skittish, or maybe we feel just unconfident. We just feel hesitant and, you know, I I don't know if, is this the right thing to be doing? And am I doing it right? And what's supposed to happen here anyway? And this kind of attitude in mind, this attitude of doubt or this experience of doubt in the mind really contaminates our practice, really impedes or hinders our practice. So not only are we looking at what is being known, the object that's being known, breathing in, breathing out, other sensations, thoughts, moods, we're also looking at the quality of the observing mind. Oh. Are we hovering above the present moment experience, ready to pounce on it as soon as it appears? Well, what's that attitude of mind? The one that's so hyper-vigilant that it pounces on the present moment when it emerges. Some expectation, some desire, some maybe some fear that we won't notice it. So take a look. Turn around and look at the qualities in the observing mind itself. Oh, 
and see if you can identify anything and then let go. Let the, let the observing mind be open, receptive, patiently looking, just waiting for something to be known without any expectation, without any demand, without any agenda, but just willing to be here and observe the present moment as it emerges. Can you feel how at ease the mind is, that is comfortably confident that it will notice the present moment as it emerges without a sense of struggle, without a sense of trying to make it happen, without a sense of hoping something doesn't happen, but just confidently willing to be present for whatever happens. Knowing fully that the attention will notice whatever is predominant in our experience. We don't even need to go looking in any particular direction. If we're just open and receptive, we'll notice. This is the attitude of the mind you want to be establishing and checking frequently throughout the sitting. So having said all that, let it go. Settle into the body in the present moment. Just open the attention to receive the next moment and whatever appears. Being willing to feel it, recognize it, let it be, meaning let it appear, Notice it, let it leave, confidently knowing that the attention is ready for and willing to experience the next moment. Check your attitude of mind frequently throughout the sitting. Not just the object that's being known, but the attitude with which it is, is being known. Just do the best you can without struggle and let that be good enough.
So, <clears throat> so what do you know? What do you see? What's going on? <clears throat> Last night you began the Dharma talk with a quote from the Buddha. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was. His the, the quality of the mind, light shining up. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I was wondering what you thought was the most balanced way to incorporate that insight into our practice. So I began the talk last night with a quote by the Buddha about the nature of the mind is shining, radiant, clear, shiny, and that it is due to visiting forces known as kalesas or defilements that we suffer. Okay, let me, let me, let me just try to point to what that's, let me just try to elucidate a little bit what that's pointing to. The mind is continually knowing something, continually. We can't stop it from knowing anything, right? But sometimes it's obscure. You know, the mind gets clouded with depression and fear and anxiety and we don't know, what, we don't know what's going on. Now think about this. In your life, in your life, think of all the happiness and all the pleasure and all the joy you have experienced. I mean, you can't, of course, but just, just kind of scroll along, just go, wow. It's immense, isn't it? It's just tremendous. We've just had so much great, wonderful, loving, joyful, pleasant experiences. Has that improved the ability of the mind to know this moment, this next moment? Hasn't touched it. Now think of all the fear and anxiety and stress and depression and anger and dissatisfaction that you've experienced in your life. Just a tremendous amount of that too. Right? Has that impeded or corrupted the mind's ability to know the next moment totally clearly. Hasn't touched it. Right? The mind is unchanged by those experiences. It just keeps going on, knowing the next moment after moment after moment. So why are we so excited about pleasant experiences? Why are we so fearful of unpleasant experiences? The mind is just going to keep knowing. It's not going to be damaged. It's not going to be improved. Right? That's what it's pointing to. But because we get identified and, and kind of entangled in the unpleasant and the reactive states of mind, or we get seduced by the pleasant and the, the joyful states of mind, we forget. And we think, oh, it should be this way, and it shouldn't be that way. You can't make it happen. You cannot make it happen. 
you can train the mind, and that's what we're doing, training the mind to recognize these, these facts, these facts of life, really. This is the way it is. This is the way it has been. This is the way it will continue to be. The more we can recognize and just accept, oh, this is the way it is. This is the way things have come to be. This is the way the mind works. Then the less we'll struggle with the way the mind unfolds. And when we stop struggling, everything comes into alignment and it's like, it's okay. It's okay. But in the meantime, we have to kind of wallow through our fear and our depression and our loneliness and our anxiety and our, uh, you know, attachment to hopefully it's going to be better tomorrow. It will be. Some days. And it won't be the other days. It's like that. Now, sometimes you hear this kind of teaching, you go, what the hell? It's just like, why, why, why bother? You know, well, if we bother because we suffer, right? We suffer. And so if you don't do anything, you know where that'll take you. And so we're left with this option, this one option. Pay attention. Things will change. Notice that. And as to, to the extent that we do train the mind to be aware and to notice and to understand, then I, th- I think it's, it's right to say, not that, the, not that we just become happier and more pleasant, but that the sense of well-being in our life becomes stronger. And our sense of well-being is not so jerked around by whether this experience is pleasant or unpleasant. A sense of well-being can be there even in the midst of really unpleasant conditions. That's, that's the direction that practice takes us, to a growing sense of stable well, well-being in our life. Yeah. Um, we hear the phrase a lot, because of causes and conditions. Yeah. But can you give me some examples of causes and conditions? Sure. Uh, conventionally speaking, we would say we're here on retreat in the middle of a nine-day retreat at IMS in Massachusetts in the 21st century, listening to the teachings of the Buddha and practicing mindful awareness, right? That's what, that's what, that's what's happening here, right? Am I wrong? Wait a minute. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Conventionally speaking, that's what's happening, right? Okay. Well, well, why is why can we say that? Why, how can we say what? What are the causes and conditions that have come together to make this happen? Well, you made a decision some months ago to look through the website or something and say, "I want to do that." You made a choice. You put your money in. You arrived here a few days ago. You're, all of those are causes and conditions for this thing called a retreat to happen. But there's many other causes and conditions that are not so apparent. Well. Like what? Well, back in 1976, a bunch of us got together and bought this place. Oh, I forgot about that. And for the last 40 years, there's been, you know, a team of board members and teachers that have been keeping this place going so that we could be here now. I forgot about all that, too. And we wouldn't even be here if there wasn't a Buddha 2,600 years ago. That's a big cause and condition for our being here. Oh, we forget that, right? It's not just because I decided to be here. 
that there's a retreat happening. It's because of an just infinite number of causes and conditions that are weaving together this present moment of conventional understanding. Causes and conditions. It didn't just pop up like a mushroom. Well, a mushroom arises because of causes and conditions too. <laughs> like that. Is that, does that address kind of what you're thinking about? Okay. So, So the question is about regret and atonement. I know what regret means. I'm not sure I know what atonement means, but let me let me just let me just uh, share what my experience of regret, remorse, experiences like that. In the course of just trying to be present with things as they appear in our minds and our bodies, like like we've been doing, inevitably we all, to some degree or rather, kind of perform a personal history review. Meaning, we just scroll through our past and wherever there has been some tension, some pain, some, some holding, some resistance, there's, there's, there's holding in the mind. And that comes up again and again and again until we see it. Wherever there's suffering in the mind, you can bet it's going to appear. So we don't, we don't, we don't escape anything eventually. Eventually we're going to see everything that's in here. But in the meantime, when those come up, so a, a, you know, a, a memory comes up of something you did that was really unskillful. For example, you know, you said something out of anger, you did something that was really humiliating or you, to yourself or, or to others. Uh, you just really hurt yourself, you hurt others. At the time that you did it, you had the reasons, you had the justification, you had the, you know, the emotion that justified it, and you just kind of went on with it. There. There. Did that, got through that one. <laughs> Whatever. And now that you have a little bit of mindfulness, mindfulness has this quality of not allowing you to deceive yourself. Straightness of mind. And when that memory comes up again, as it will, because there's some pain there, there's some shame there, some fear there, some humiliation, there's some disgustedness with yourself or whatever, you know, okay. So it comes up and comes up and comes up and you look at it. Now with mindfulness, with the momentum of mindfulness, you see it for what it really was at that time. Oh my God, I was such a jerk. I was so careless. I was so, whatever, you know, and you can feel how painful it was for you at that time, for the other person at that time. And there's no, there's no mincing any words. There's no, there's no sugarcoating anything. You're going to see it as it was, even if you didn't know it at the time. And mostly we don't know it at the time. We're deluded. We're deluded. We're acting out of anger. We're acting out of desire. We're acting out of fear or something. 
So we're not seeing things clearly. But mindfulness, the mind is a perfect camcorder. It has recorded everything from your past in intimate and accurate detail. Mindfulness will recover that. It will see it again until you, in your present moment, full wakefulness, can accept it. When it comes to having done something shameful or uh, bad, very bad in the sense that you caused harm to yourself or others, you have to feel that. You have to feel that harm. You'll come to recognize that was really a careless uh, thing to do. That was not good. It was painful. You can have compassion for yourself. But the real um, forgiveness comes when you understand really what was going on there. Ignorance, attachment, aversion were in control of your mind. Now that you see it more clearly, you can have a, a great sense of loss about uh, that, that opportunity and you can have forgiveness. The forgiveness is really understanding that now I understand that was a really careless thing to do. That was a hurtful thing to do. Ignorance was in control of the mind. Now I see, now I understand. And that person who did that at that time no longer exists. That person that came into being at that time was a sense of self brought that was constellated due to causes and conditions at that time, a significant one being ignorance. Now, the causes and conditions that are coming together to create this sense of self in this moment has awareness, wisdom, understanding, clear perception, and sees, wow, okay, that's, that's what was going on then due to causes and conditions. No more me than, you know, another time in the past. So you can have tremendous remorse for having done something, but you don't have to feel a sense of guilt. You don't have to make a, make a solid sense of yourself. I'm a guilty person, always will be, because that's a stain in my past that I'll never, get a, I'll never grow out of. That's not so. If that was so, we'd be hopelessly kind of lost. But we can, we can see it. We can come to understand the unskillfulness of what we've done and have real remorse, rec recognize it, and in ourselves, in our own minds, aspire to not do that again. Really say, you know what? I really don't want to do that again. It's just too painful. It's just too painful for myself and for the other. And so we, we, that remorse is really a, is a, uh, is a wholesome state of mind. Guilt is identification with the sense of self that's uh, unskillful. How's that? Okay? Time's up. Um, we're still doing groups today, so please come to your groups. Uh, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, Vance and I will be here to take questions and try to offer you answers. So if you have any lingering questions, that'll be a time to think them up and we'll try to do our best. Um, anything else? Have a good day.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.